Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep into space by Captain Meek, Captain S. P. Meek, writing under the name Sterner St. Paul in the issue uh, we got it from, which is Astounding Stories of Super Science. Uh, February 1930. This is the second issue of Astounding Stories. And um, I, I read another story in this issue called uh, Creatures of the Light, which is uh, quite delightful. Um, it's utterly ridiculous and very super science-y. But uh, the reason I, I want to check this one out is not only because it was short, but also because it has a rocket ship. Uh, in the art, and it turns out it's not a rocket ship. Um, I, after I finished reading it, I thought, oh, this is very uh, very interesting. The guy's just ripping off H.G. Wells. <laughs> he's ripping off H.G. Wells' novel, and then he's, um, he's just making it sort of shorter. And I thought, well, I wonder why this story is so weird, and yet I like it. And um, I now have answers for both. <laughs> well... Tell us more, sir. Well, um, the story I'm thinking that he, I, I immediately thought he was ripping off is called The First Men in the Moon, which is a novel by H.G. Wells. And there are a lot of similarities in the anti-gravity technology that is employed here. Um, Indeed. I, that's a 1901 I, novel, by the way, just yeah. for our listeners. That's that's 29 years before this was published. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't, you know, I mean, if you were in in the world reading SF, uh, it wouldn't have been as available to you as it is to us now. On the other hand, S.P. Meek certainly is aware of, of I mean, it's in the story. They refer to, <laughs> one of the characters says, I assume you're familiar with science fiction. He doesn't use the word science fiction, but that's what he's talking about. And the narrator says, of course. <laughs> right. So um, they, uh, the narrator is aware, the uh, scientist, mad scientist character is aware. And I, as I should he, also point out, that in 1930, H.G. Wells is still very much oh, yeah. a prominent public writer. I mean, The Shape of Things to Come is a big movie hit in 1933, for example, uh, which is, he's the co-writer of the screenplay as well as the writer of the novel. So he's, it's not the the last century, the last decade of the 19th century with, uh, you know, the War of the Worlds and the Time Machine and the Island of Dr. Moreau, but Wells is still out there and mm-hmm. very prominent. Uh, Meek and, could and not his books not were know. famous, right? And and if Absolutely. you were like a guy named S.P. Meek, who uh, who's a a chemist, um, you know, and also writing science fiction, quite a bit of it, um, you would be aware. It would, it, I believe, it was even serialized in Amazing. This is this this is the first issue or second issue of Astounding. Um, that novel was serialized and amazing. He, I, I'm pretty much guaranteed he would have read it. So he's a, he is familiar with it. It's, but it's not a ripoff. And I think that's a very important. And the reason I think it's important is because of the other thing that I thought was really weird about it when I first read it is he takes so long getting to the action is what I thought. He takes so long getting to the actual you know, launch of this, this uh, spacecraft. And then 
in subsequent readings, I've realized, oh, I see what he's doing here. And all of that buildup, all of the time it takes to get there is incredibly important because of what happens. And that makes it actually, uh, it made me revise my view of it. it. The the story is published in Astounding. And this is the period when E.E. Um, e. Doc Smith is just about to get start, start going, right? All the space opera where all problems are solved with um, inventing new technology on the fly is going to get going. And eventually this magazine is going to get taken over by jo- John Campbell. And he's going to sort of do a revision, a wipe, wipe the slate clean on it. And he's going to be getting rid of stories like Creatures of the Light, which is exactly that. It's creating things on the fly, terrible, ridiculous theories that are incredibly funny and enjoyable, but not not scientific. Whereas this story, I'm realizing, is it's actually hard, hard science fiction. It's... It has actually a classical traditional info dump, although it's masterfully handled. I didn't even notice that it was an info dump. It was sort of a little back and forth. And uh, and then the, thinking about how it's framed with this heavy front frame of how he gets to tell this story, uh, you know, how he actually gets to go interview this scientist. It's actually really amazing, this story. Uh, 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 uh. I agree with you. I think that the uh, the uh, people haven't paid a lot of attention. I mean, critics haven't paid a lot of attention to this particular author. No. But uh, of those who have, uh, they have generally disparaged his skill. Uh, mm-hmm. They've called him a bad writer. Uh, they've said that as a stylist, he was... Uh, uh, blind. He, he really couldn't write his way out of a paper bag, although he did have some interesting ideas. And I think to say that he had some interesting ideas, and that's all, is to recognize the difference between, say, Wells' uh, 1901 novel and this 1930 story. In the 1901 novel, uh, Cavorite, this uh, scientist Cavor, um, finds this stuff which has rays that oppose gravity. Mm-hmm. And he puts uh, them in three wells, that's, you know, uh, pockets, holes um, around the base of a ship with louvers. And if the louvers open, then the Cavorite rays come out uh, and the ship moves away from anything that would otherwise attract it. And if you close the louvers, um, you can balance it. And if you close them all the way, then you can get pushed back down again. And there is no such thing as Cavorite. There's no explanation for how there could be Cavorite. It just is. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that the time machine just is. It makes a nice idea, but it's not worked out here uh, Meek actually does give us a lengthy explanation of how we get this anti-gravity situation. And he calculates how it's going to get you to the to the place where you can just switch over from being against the Earth's gravity to the moon's gravity. And I, of course, having the advantage of having been born well, after this was written, uh, once he talked about the switchover point, I thought instantly, aha, 
he's not going to make it, and he's going to be stuck between the Earth and the Moon forever. Mm-hmm. And that explains the opening. So, you know, for a modern reader, this is, as you say, uh, really an extraordinarily interesting, and I would say well-written, work of hard SF. But mm-hmm. I think it's something much more than that as well. Um, so let me just just remind us. It starts out, as you say, with a long beginning. Uh, the first person narrator talks about he how his own education, and he comes to know this professor and the professor, and then he, he winds up uh, having a friendly relationship with the professor, but he doesn't really study the professor's stuff at all. The guy always gives A's, so he takes the the kid takes the classes. And they enjoy each other's company, but then the kid graduates and gets a job as a cub reporter at the so-called San Francisco Graphic. And his his editor-in-chief disparages him there, but he allows him to go out to meet this fellow um, because the fellow says, uh, I will speak to no one but, but that guy. So our guy goes out. And he meets the uh, professor again, and he gets the explanation for what's going to go on. And there is, it, this part is hard to believe, a one-way radio connection. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I, the ship can communicate down, but he can't communicate up. But there's a one-way radio connection through which our guy hears what's going on and then gets the rest of the story. And then we come back to say, okay, so what I said in the beginning, many of my readers will remember the mysterious radio messages. Now at the end, we get the explanation. The radio messages were sent by this, uh, the ship that's trapped at a, a gravitational balance point. And they cease after the air runs out and the professor is no longer able to, to send them. It's rather sad in a lot of ways. But it's good hard SF. I, I don't even. I, yeah, I don't think I don't think the air ran out. I think he killed himself. Um, and and I, that one way radio thing, it actually really fits with sort of the setup and how it, it's just a series of stupid mistakes. So the very first thing that happens is um, he says, "My my readers," and I love that w- this stuff may have all been rewritten. <laughs> by a better reporter according to the editor right so we don't know if if this we're reading this in the san francisco graphic if we're reading about what happened in these connections and the story he puts way too much of his own stuff in it and to be an actual newspaper article right you know his 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 relationship the dialogue that is not how you write a newspaper article so maybe this is the draft we're seeing the draft that's handed to the to the uh, veteran reporter who's going to have to sh- make this fit into a newspaper article. But in any case, we, we get this relationship where our, our narrator is saying, well, I went to, uh, my boss told me to go to see uh, this scientist, this professor at the university. And he goes to the university and the professor's not there. It's because the professor forgot, he got so mad at the editor that he forgot to tell him where he was. And then he gets to the gate uh, two days later because he's he's uh, went to the wrong place and he's not allowed in. And then Indian at the gate uh, tries to shoot him. He says, quote unquote, murder him twice. And the reason is, well, he was told that he was expected yesterday and that he was not expected today. And then he goes in there and the professor says, hey, I've got 
I've got this spaceship and I've equipped it with all this equipment, including enough air for uh, two months and a uh, enough food for six months. And I've got an air scrubber and I've got a one-way radio. <laughs> and he's doing all this on his own. Presumably, he's wealthy enough, this professor, to uh, afford uh, all to build this aircraft and or spacecraft and uh, barn. And then what does he do? He has a reporter who is somewhat familiar with with uh, science a little bit um, come in, who's who's chummy with, to sort of report on it uh, as he takes off. And he's he's got this one way communication, so he can tell the world what's going on, but nobody can tell him a goddamn thing. And that is where this mad scientist story fits in with so many other great science fiction stories about mad scientists saying you can't do science in the dark you can't do science outside of a community because that's not science it, it, it's a mistake this is the classic frankensteinian monster mistake and what's so funny is if you look at that original hg wells novel um it has all this this sort of stuff right in its setup too but the difference is that is also a social satire, whereas this is not. This is not a social satire at all. It is a hard SF story dealing with the same problem of doing science in the dark. I was thinking, like, he, he get he goes up, he gets stuck in this Lagrange point, right? Uh, that's well, what it's I'm not thinking. a Lagrange point, but yes, it's something like an, a Lagrange point. It's it's a stable it, right. place it, between it's, the it's moon and the earth. It's right. right. It's an equilibrium. An orbit would be another way of putting it, but um, it, it's a it's a, he doesn't use the word Lagrange point, but that's what immediately I was, you know, if this was a, a Larry Niven story, it'd be a little um, more modern uses of uh, uh, this is all pre, you know, satellites, so this is pretty impressive. But the important part is uh, if he's if he he actually says in one of the radio messages, if I could just move a few feet, right. <laughs> I would be able to get back to to the Earth or back to the or over to the Moon and then back to the Earth. And well, he has a lot of rooms in that place. He could like let out some air, and that would push the spacecraft just a little bit. Um, but he has no way to get feedback from the Earth, and that is a huge mistake. He also made it a, a kind of exclusive radio setup so that the ultra low frequency radio waves that he's using presumably because he wanted to have exclusivity uh cause everyone else not to be able to communicate with him until they rebuild their sets and they try and communicate but they can't because he has no receiver so that huge opening setup for what is eventually the takeoff and the problem that happens after is it's like a reverse of Apollo 13, where when they have a problem, they say, this is the equipment we have. We need to get back to Earth. Can you help us? And the people on Earth say, God damn, we better help them. And then they communicate how to, you know, solve the problem. In our story, he can't do that. And that's why the glaring mistake is so glaring and why this story exists. And I think it's so interesting. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on in here too, but that was the like the core for me is like, oh, this is a real, this is a real science story. It's taking a mad scientist and putting him in a in a hard SF story, 
and then saying this is this wouldn't go wrong if you don't participate in the open process that is scientific and engineering standards you know community so you're arguing that it is a social critique story it is in fact it's arguing the the supremacy of the society over the individual yes it, it when it comes to you know if if you're doing uh, vaccine research um it's best not to do it in the dark it's best to do it uh, and publish your studies in in public so they can be peer reviewed critiqued and then the problems that we're finding with your vaccine will be known and until you know a disaster happens for example i think what you say here is is, is significant it's significant particularly at this period in the evolution of science fiction because as you say in moving from amazing to astounding and so on there's a uh, a, a bit of a uh, a culture shift arguing about what the role of science is in science fiction and um, this story may itself be stuck at one of those equilibrium points mm. and the reason i suggest that is that it seems to me there is a supplementary way to look at this or a complementary way to look at the story it is hard sf we could read the description as you say, it's well written. You don't even know it's an info dump, um, perhaps, of how it is that this um, this anti-gravity polarity is set up. Um, it, it's very good. But I think that one way to read the story uh, sees this not, and indeed, as having a long buildup until we get to the core. But in fact, this is a different story. It's a story about the narrator. Mm-hmm. The narrator tells us many things that, as you say, we would not need to know in a newspaper report. So he has readers, but these clearly are not readers of a newspaper, as you say. He tells us, for example, that his father was an engineer and that his father wanted him to become an engineer. Um, but in fact, um, he couldn't become an engineer. He was terrible. He he evaded his father. He went to went to college. He went to uh, Calvada, uh, which is California, Nevada, the University mm-hmm. of Calvada. Um, he goes to the University of Calvada. He makes believe he's studying engineering, um, and to in doing this, he takes this easy course that Professor Livermore uh, gives. Um, but and they come to know each other. And why do they come to know each other? They come to know each other because it turns out that our narrator, although he has some affinity for science, um, he really likes literature and he studies literature all the time. And when he gets his degree, um, he tells his father, no, I don't want to be an engineer. Um, I want to be a writer. And his father says to him, well, you might as well be because you couldn't be a worse writer than you are an engineer. Right. I mean, his father just denigrates him. His father sees him in one way only as a an engineer, and he fails that father. Then he gets a job as a cub reporter, reads son, child, cub, mm-hmm. on the San Francisco graphic. And he is so used to Barnes saying, well, you can go do something. We'll have a real writer rewrite it and make it good. Barnes has the exact same relationship to our narrator as a writer that his actual father had to him as a scientist. 
But this professor picks him because he had learned in coming to know him in class and around the campus that he combined an imagination and a facility with language and a care about storytelling with a knowledge of science. In a way, the story is saying that the ideal reader and writer of science fiction is someone who bridges these two very different realms, each of which rejects our narrator. But the professor does not. Now, the professor, like the other two father figures, doesn't want to be spoken back to, as you point out. Mm -hmm. It's a one-way radio connection. But when we get to the end, what we realize is that this story is saying that the two remarkable events, the disappearance of the appearance of a new satellite and the the radio signals, which were detected but did not continue, are linked by a third one, which is the disappearance of this professor. This professor is the beginning of everything that is odd, significant, and noteworthy. And this professor is the one who says, come to me. I want you to be my heir. And at the end, we could look up in the sky and see, if we had the right telescope, we could see that interplanetary vehicle, which is the professor now permanently in the heavens. And our fellow is telling us a story about how the, the father figure who recognized the significance of having both imagination and science, he's the one who because, now I'm going back to your viewpoint, Jesse, because he did not try to find a way to make that work within society as a whole, he simply becomes, like so many Greek heroes, uh, a mortal who has died and gone to become a star. And our fellow has, in fact, written very well. This is not something that needs revision by one of Barnes's more uh, <laughs> professional and experienced writers. This is a terrific story, very well written, and it even includes a long paragraph, actually a couple of paragraphs, that explain university politics mm -hmm. and how it is that Livermore was able to do what he was doing and so on. It is, in fact, the work of someone who does understand what's going on and is arguing for the significance of bridging the two cultures. The two different father figures denigrate him, but he demonstrates that the bridging is what's crucial. His professor gives him the chance to observe it, and he then honors that professor by writing the story. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's a demise for the professor for the reasons that you suggest, but it's a great success for the narrator. And I can't help but wonder if the chemist, Meek, himself sees himself as that ideal reader and ideal writer of science fiction. I, it, it is a very astounding thing, you know, the, uh, that, you know, it eventually becomes uh, fans or slans, right? We're special, we readers of SF, um, because we can turn the facts of science, the wonders of science, into stories about what will be, 
or what could be. And uh, I, 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 your interpretation is wonderful um, and correct, I think. I want to point out that um, there's another professor in the story he's mentioned at the beginning and at the end. Professor Montesquieu, who announces the discovery of the world's first new satellite, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, he he says um, uh, it's a uh, it was discovered on the night of September 25th, um, and uh, it's Earth has a new moon. Basically, it doesn't say the word moon, but that's what they mean by satellite here. Um, and there's some debate as to whether or, or uh, some question in the newspapers as to whether this this uh, new satellite has a atmosphere and they say no it's too small right so there's a mistake going on in, and and that a mistake is that they think it's a natural cell a satellite or at least they assume that it is and this story is addressing that this story is saying no uh, um, I actually know what's going on and I know who's in that and I think that's all Really wonderful. Um, another thing that drew me to this story, other than you know seeing that ro- what I thought was a rocket. On, if, uh, if I may, I'm sorry. Just yeah, go, go for it. I, I don't want to stop you. Montesquieu, spelled differently, is in fact a French philosopher who is considered to be one of the um, fountainheads of the underlying political thinking that led to the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. It's. Right, so it's it's not a random name that's being used. No, I don't think anything here is random. I think it's very well chosen. Indeed, and I for one other about that, the particular place that our reporter has to go to to see this fellow is Mount Lassen, which is the southernmost active volcano in the Cascade Range. It's in Northern California. So this is a place of enormous activity. It seems to be close, but in fact, it is. It is dangerous. It's a place this fellow, that is the professor, has chosen, as you say, to get away and risk himself. Not a great idea, but he does it. Uh, So I'm simply fleshing out a bit of what it is I think you're you're Mm -hmm. working on here, Jesse. The uh, the uh, editor calls um, seems to know who Livermore was. Uh, You know, he says whenever Livermore has something going, we gotta check out because it'll make a good story. He's insisting on you come up and do this, the narrator. Um, but he calls them liver pills. <laughs> right. Because um, it's, you know, he's he doesn't really care about the professor's work. He cares about selling stories. Um, another thing that drew me to this story immediately, other than seeing the uh, what I thought was a rocket ship, and then uh, now know is not. Um, in fact, rocket ships are what was needed. He just needed to add a little rocket. Um to maneuver. That was his huge mistake, right? Didn't do enough uh, testing, enough uh, science fictioning um, to figure out what, what he needed. Um, but in that in that first page, in that art, there is a couple other things of important note. He's waving to the professor as he's flying off into space with the little mushroom end on this bullet-shaped cap. And then we see the, the radio, the special low-frequency radio transmitter uh, or receiver um it doesn't have a transmitter and then also we see two pictures hanging one of them is what looks like a very early rocket covering up like some hole in the wallpaper and the other one looks to me either like hg wells or edgar Allan poe 
And I agree completely. I, I don't agree think, completely. I don't of course, think we don't that know this, that, that Meek does decided what the illustration should absolutely. be. Nonetheless, it, the, 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 those are not mentioned in the story, those two uh, pictures. But this is the, the special relationship that art has. You know, one the, the very first reader of this story, as far as I would guess, other than the editor, would have been the artist. After the writer writes it, he submits it to the uh, to the editor. Editor ag- agrees to buy it, and then he he sends off the check or you know promises to send the check at one point, and then he gets his artist to get busy, make this sell. And I don't think that anybody who was reading this 1930 issue would be very unfamiliar with either H.G. Wells or Poe. I can't tell which it is, but it's one or the other is my guess. And there's a reason for that. This is not a ripoff, as I uh, I thought, sort of a shitty ripoff. Uh, uh, because I, I went, after, as soon as I finished reading, I was like, no, you know what? There's something going on here. I don't know what it is, but it's really interesting. And the more times I looked at it, the more I realized S.P. Meek is unjustly forgotten. This story is pretty darn good. There's a lot going on in it. I, I, the only thing we really didn't touch on that I, I thought might be worth touching on if we had more time would be to think about the relationship that the professor has to his Indian servants. They follow his orders exactly, and maybe that's the problem. It's another problem with this one-way professorship. The professor standing at the front of the class, lecturing, doesn't care whether students do well or not. It's kind of a mistake there. Whether they show up or not, it doesn't really matter to him. It's kind of a mistake. It makes for a friendly professor, professorial relationship with all the students, but uh, the university kept him on only because he was so good at research. You know, there's another way to look at that, of course, that Mm -hmm. the professor is perfectly willing to let people express their own talents. And he doesn't see any reason for penalizing them because they took his class and it turned out they weren't very interested. Uh, He doesn't want to be, and this is in keeping with what you said about fitting within a larger cultural matrix, he doesn't want to be a gatekeeper and credential a credential creator for a society that looks to employ people on the basis of what credentials they've gotten and what grades they've gotten. He just says, here I am, I'm imparting knowledge as seems fit to me, and those who want to get it, great, and those who don't, also great. You guys are deserving of your own lives. And in fact, he very much fills a needed place in the life of our narrator, who, by the way, if he did publish in the San Francisco graphic, might have loved the pic- the picture you just had us analyze, because whether we're looking at this in the words or the illustrations, what I think you're rightly pointing out is that Meek has been unfairly dismissed. His material is such that there is always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts 
by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.